The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. You can't understand how influential he was and how it just exploded at that time. And everything became Garcia Marquez after that. Yeah. Every, you, could, you could just see how writing changed, how influential he was. And, you know, certainly by the time it's sort of filtered down to you, it's been so absorbed. It's so it's, absorbed. It's, so many people. It's just people. part of the vocabulary. Yep. It's, it's everything. It's everywhere. It's, it's done. It's, you just don't understand how different it was. Yeah. To, to, but I was, so I was, you know, I, mean, I borrowed my parents' Volvo. I was always remembering their Volvo 240. And I was driving over to see this guy who was madly, wildly crazy in love with. And, but I was also in the middle of, re, of reading 100 years and I just remember just stopping outside of this house, turning on the dome light and reading because, you know, as alluring as that prospect, you know, inside there was, I could not stop reading. Mm, that was author Sarah Bird talking about her youthful passion. Or should I say... Passions. Her wild love is waiting for her inside the house, but another love attracts her as well, out there in the car, under the dome light, as she reads for the first time the fiction of Gabriel Garcia Marquez. It gives me goosebumps. And I had goosebumps during my conversation with Sarah as we discussed her latest novel, Daughter of a Daughter of a Queen which tells the story of a real-life slave named Kathy Williams, who served in the Union Army as a cook and a washerwoman, and then, after the war was over, disguised herself as a man, re-enlisted, this time as a soldier named William Kathy. We'll have her story, and Sarah's story as a reader and writer, and more about the great 20th century novelist, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Plenty to get through this time. It's a great day. We have one of the greats. Gabriel Garcia Marquez. What a magical novelist he is. Just when you think that the novel is moribund, that it's seen it all, that practitioners have pushed things as far as they can go, along comes a Garcia Marquez to breathe new life into the form. We'll talk about his innovations, as well as a bit of his life, in just a bit. But first, I wanted to thank some new patrons. Oh, hello. Yes, hello. Who is it? Oh, no. Oh, no. It's Halloween month. This is Edgar Allan Poe. Yes, Edgar. How are you? That sound you hear. Bricks. Bricks. Ah. Bricks being placed one by one in a wall not six inches from my person. Oh, Edgar. Bricks set by my enemy, Fortunato. I am to be entombed, it seems. Mm. 
A pity, really. I have so much more to give. <laughs> You're a giving Only sort. my saviour, that noble whelp Jack Wilson, would come to my rescue. He's outside of Fortunato's castle, attempting to bribe the footman. But I fear he lacks sufficient funds. <sighs> oh, won't you help him? You hard-hearted book lover. Won't you help him? And me? Oh, Edgar. If only, if only you did not need to count on that noble whelp, Jack Wilson. He's doing his best. It must be October, and you must be getting ready for Halloween. It's your month, isn't it, Edgar? We might, we might have some more with you coming up. Everyone. Edgar reminds us that you can support the show by heading over to patreon.com slash literature, where you can sign up for a small recurring donation. I'm not sure where we're headed with this thing, frankly, this podcast. There may be some more changes afoot, but I do know this. I truly do appreciate all of you who are throwing a few shillings my way, a happeny or two, once a month on your PayPal account or credit card. This week, we're thanking new Patreons, Kirthana and Christine. Many thanks to both of you and to all of our wonderful Patreons. So, one quick email. Should we do an email? Why not? Here's one I got from a reviewer on Apple Podcasts. The emails come to me. The reviews come to me by email. So I'm not sure exactly how to respond to this person. I'll do it here. He says, History of Literature, five stars. I discovered the history of literature about two years ago and have been a true fan ever since. Learning the intricacies of plot lines and backstories of writers' lives and loves enriches my understanding of so many classics that I never had the time to read. Jack Wilson, while he doesn't have a typical radio voice, <laughs> common complaint, has a winning personality that never disappoints. He's witty, conversational with his foil, Mike Palindrome, and can simultaneously inform and amuse. <laughs> I love that. My foil. That's fantastic. Yes, indeed. Mike is my foil. He's kind of my foil in real life, too. A friendly foil. The email continues, Jack's self-deprecating nature won me over from the beginning, and I had to listen to his prior episodes just to get enough of his quirky humor, LOL. At the end of each episode, I feel both smarter and sated. You know those questionnaires where they ask what famous person or not-so-famous person would you like to have a dinner conversation with? My answer, Jack Wilson. <laughs> this is why I read this review out loud. Well, that and the enormous heat and light of the praise, which I bask in, like any good flower that can only turn toward the sun. But I cannot believe the part at the end about wanting to have a dinner conversation with Jack Wilson. I'm totally honored and totally flattered, and I'm very glad that this is a hypothetical scenario only because, my friend, you have made a disastrous choice. Truly disastrous. I think you would regret that one for a long time. Well, actually, that was my first thought. And then I thought, hang on. Maybe I'm just being overly modest. Maybe it wouldn't be that bad. I'm an okay guy. I have a successful podcast. After all, I must be doing something right. So luckily, I had a few people to check with. Three people 
whom I eat dinner with all the time, almost every day, and I asked them what they thought. And this was their response. Stunned silence, uproarious laughter, and a general consensus that indeed our poor listener would be making a disastrous choice. So I guess that's that. Actually, here's what I think, all all kidding aside. I think I would be a great plus one. If you could take two people along, take me and then take some genius or celebrity or something, whoever interests you, because I can guarantee you that I will be curious and I will stay out of the way or jump in as needed. But I will be curious. That's the key. In whomever you pick, I can guarantee it. And then you and I can get together afterwards and talk about what just happened. I honestly think I would be very good at that, and I'm sort of looking forward to it, even though, of course, this is not going to happen. But if it ever does happen, Apple iTunes 127 from USA. And if you get to take a real luminary, plus a companion to meet the luminary, count me in. Okay, let's get started with Gabriel Garcia Marquez, a great choice for our dinner companion. And then our special guest today, author Sarah Bird, who would be another excellent choice. And we're all connected through reading and listening, aren't we? Across generations, across geographies. It's a good theme for today since both our authors, Garcia Marquez and Sarah Bird, are specialists in that kind of fiction. Fiction with power, fiction with drive fiction with sweep. Gabriel Garcia Marquez and Sarah Bird after this. This is Jack here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right, Factor, and they're delicious, ready-to-eat meals. These things are amazing, chef-crafted, always fresh, never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup, and you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love Factor meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food, and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week, whatever suits you and your family best. Head to factormeals.com slash literature50 and use code literature50 to get 50% off. That's code literature50 at factormeals.com slash literature50 to get 50% off. Hey, grown-ups! the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet 
podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Gabriel Garcia Marquez was born in 1927 in a small town in Colombia, a town next to a river that flowed from the mountains, a town that he was to fictionalize and make famous as Macondo. Soon after he was born, his father became a pharmacist and moved to another town with his wife, leaving Gabriel, who was called Gabo throughout his life, to be raised by his grandparents on his mother's side. His father was in and out of the picture for a while. When Gabo's grandfather died, he was returned to the family with his father, and they moved from town to town, looking for a place that needed a pharmacy, finally landing in a town called Sucre. This relationship he had with his parents and grandparents, a child living with grown-ups, influenced by them but also trying to understand their mysteries, would affect Gabo and flavor his fiction writing for the rest of his life. Let's talk first about his grandparents. His grandfather was a liberal, considered a hero by his fellow liberals. He had fought in the Thousand Days War, which took place at the turn of the century. At the heart of that war was a dispute over power taking place after decades of political instability. The Constitution was at issue, and it was replaced, and the two main factions, liberals and conservatives, could not figure out how to coexist peacefully. The pendulum swung from one side to another. Coffee prices fell, which did not help. As always, arguing over shares of prosperity is one thing, but arguing over declining economic conditions is the kind of argument that can lead to battles and civil war. That is exactly what happened in 1899 when the ruling conservatives were accused of cheating on the elections in order to maintain power. For the next three years, liberals and conservatives fought, finally signing a peace treaty in 1902. A generation later, young Gabo lived with his grandfather, who had been a colonel in the liberal army. He was a storyteller, who taught Gabo lessons from the dictionary and said things like, you can't imagine how much a dead man weighs, a phrase that rang throughout Garcia Marquez's life and fiction. His grandmother was another great storyteller. Her stories were different from her husband's. Her husband was upright, stalwart. I mean, teaching lessons from the dictionary is really something. That's precision. Here is a word. Here is its definition. Here is what this word means. It's a great lesson for a writer, but it also gives you a sense of his view on life. Matter of fact, his grandfather recounted his own exploits this way too. Here's where we were. Here's what happened. It was a dry delivery from the former military hero. His grandmother, 
had a different worldview. Hers was the world of ghosts and omens and strange premonitions. Her husband ignored all this. He didn't really buy it. The grandmother did, but she didn't say, sit down and let me tell you something wild and fantastic. Here's one you won't believe. Here's one that will scare you. No, what struck young Gabo was how she delivered these stories with a perfect deadpan style, as if they were not only true events, but irrefutably true. Magic, wild stories of wild magic, but told realistically. That's the genre. That's what Garcia Marquez became famous for. That's what readers responded to and writers were influenced by. It's what fostered a thousand academic articles and a backlash and a backlash to a backlash. It changed the world, and it's all there in the stories that a grandmother told to her grandson. The stories themselves and the way in which they were told. Remember that the next time you have a small child in your care, you might be making history without even trying. Now, let's talk about his parents. There was his mother, Louisa, young and beautiful. Her father, the distinguished liberal colonel, the sort of man who teaches lessons out of a dictionary, but also values trips to the circus. And now comes Gabo's father, a conservative with a bad reputation, a womanizer, the sort of man the colonel wants to keep his daughter away from. And here comes this man, Gabriel, full of love in his heart, passionate for women, and now for this woman in particular, for Louisa. He comes in with love poems, with violin serenades, with telephone messages, and of course, letter after letter after letter. Their love is doomed. It cannot be. The grandfather, the hero, will never allow it. But love finds a way. Louisa was taken with this, Gabriel, politics be damned. And finally, her family gave in as well. We can imagine what that must have been like for young Gabriel. His parents were gone. He was left with his grandparents, his steady, loving, reliable grandparents who cared for him and nurtured him and took him to the circus. And yet, he knew his parents were elsewhere having an adventure. They were the adventurous ones. His father was the lover, passionate and romantic and the story of their relationship was the stuff of legend. I think that's element number two, the love that cannot be killed, the love that transcends barriers, the adventurous, risky, dangerous things that love drives people toward. And yet, with Garcia Marquez, the great theme is also solitude. Love and solitude are never far away from one another. It's what gives his novels not just triumphs and, and disappointments, but something rich and enduring and human as well. Not just highs and lows, but depths. Cross-generational depth. Whole worlds embodied in a single moment, in a single gesture, in a single failure, in a single moment of victory. A third element was his journalism. That's how he began as a journalist. He was known as a boy for being shy, but he found some success with his humor, which he conveyed through poetry and comic strips. He went to study law, but he found that literature was his true passion, the literature of Kafka and Borges. He settled upon journalism as a way of being paid to be a writer, and ten years later, he got married and had two children. The family traveled by bus, North to America to see the American South, the home of one of his literary heroes, William Faulkner, and to Mexico City. He had been a 
European correspondent for a while. He lived in New York for a while. Now he settled in Mexico City, Mexico City to be a journalist there. He picked up other writing for hire as well. He had written fiction before, but not enough to make a living. He tried screenwriting, writing advertising copy, editing magazines, and somehow he managed to put food on the table. But something was missing. That something was fiction, fiction of the kind he had always dreamed of writing. We talked about three elements, the grandparents and their distinguished background and their style of storytelling. We can also add, maybe, the stories and legends of a small town, a timeless kind of past. My grandfather, Garcia Marquez, said, was, quote, my umbilical cord with history and reality, end quote. This was a world of heroes and battles, of a distinguished gentleman taking his young grandson to see circuses and the miracle of ice, which was brought into the heat of Colombia by a fruit company. These were the stories that Garcia Marquez wanted to get into his fiction. He had wanted to write a novel about his grandparents for years, since he was 18, but he could never get the tone right, so he kept putting it off. It seems so easy now. We want to point out to him that fantastical elements and incredible historical events told in a deadpan style like a journalist, like his grandparents had told him, all fused together would be the perfect way to tell that story. But that's easy to say in retrospect. For him, there was no example of it. He was the example. He just didn't know it yet. And then... One magical day, he took a trip to Acapulco. He was driving his family there, a day's journey by car. Partway there, he stopped. The tone of the book had come to him with clarity. It was so ripe in me, he said, that I could have dictated the first chapter word by word to a typist. He turned the car around. He went back to Mexico City, to the typewriter in his house, and started writing. I did not get up for 18 months, he said later. His wife started selling things to pay the bills. The telephone went, the fridge, the radio, her jewelry, all of it sold. As he wrote the novel he was born to write, but which neither of them knew at the time whether it would be any good. He smoked 30,000 cigarettes while writing it. (laughs) It's an incredible figure. He spent $10,000, which they had eked out, through hawking their goods. Every night he met with friends to talk about what was happening in the book. He edited it obsessively. He called friends to read them pages aloud. Finally, he was ready to send it to the publisher. One hundred years of solitude, he called it. The postage cost 82 pesos. They didn't have enough. They only had enough to send half of the manuscript. So they sent what they could. Then they went to the pawn shop again got some more pesos, and came back to the post office to send the rest. It worked. Everyone in Argentina read 100 Years of Solitude, and Peru and Venezuela, suddenly he was famous. The book was a worldwide sensation. It won every prize. It spawned a thousand new writers. It united Latin America, in a sense, and it was credited with uniting Latin America and Spain, in a cultural way that hadn't been done to that point. Laborers read it, housekeepers. It was on the shelves of professors and the bedside tables in bordellos. 
John Leonard, writing in the New York Times, said, quote, You emerge from this marvelous novel as if from a dream, the mind on fire. End quote. It has sold more than 50 million copies around the world. The novel changed readers, and it changed writers. It showed Salman Rushdie a way to write Midnight's Children. He said, quote, I knew Garcia Marquez's colonels and generals, or at least their Indian and Pakistani counterparts. His bishops were my mullahs. His market streets were my bazaars. His world was mine, translated into Spanish. It's little wonder I fell in love with it, not for its magic, but for its realism. Toni Morrison sought him out, wrote the Song of Solomon based on his example. She said it resonated with her the way he talked about ghosts, which was how her family had, too. Years later, the two of them taught a course together. John Irving said, Here's a 19th century storyteller, but who's working now? It gave him permission to write the kind of books that he wanted to write, too. The list goes on and on. I could give a hundred examples of authors who've read the book, felt a kind of familiarity and yet a kind of newness, and who thought, here's what I've been hoping for. Here's the permission I needed. Here's the freedom and the expansiveness and the excitement and the joy. And that list includes today's guest, author Sarah Bird. She was a young writer in 1972 reading the book for the first time. Soon she would turn from the writing for hire she was doing to the novels she believed she had in her, in the style and form she wanted them to be. I'll let her tell the story. And then you should all run out and buy her latest book, Daughter of a Daughter of a Queen, where Sarah's own past as the daughter in a military family has combined with her work in anthropology and photojournalism and her research into African-American rodeos and how it all led her to tell an unbelievable story yet one with a lot of historical truth to it, about a woman who journeyed from slavery to the ultimate position in a man's world, disguising herself as a man in order to join the army and fight with the Buffalo Soldiers. That's another great cross-generational sweep of a story written by a woman who named her son after one of her literary heroes, the man we're talking about today, who himself listened to the stories of his grandparents in Colombia young boy called Gabo, who was taken to see the ice and who grew up to set the world on fire with his words, and who helped to make stunning books like Daughter of a Daughter of a Queen possible. Sarah Bird, after this. Okay, joining me now is the novelist Sarah Bird, who, I have it on good authority, is revered in Austin, Texas as a local treasure. <laughs> Sarah is a member of the Texas Literary Hall of Fame and the recipient of the Texas Institute of Letters Award for Distinguished Writers, which puts her in the company of Cormac McCarthy and Larry McMurtry. Sarah is a six-time winner of the Austin Chronicle's Best Fiction Writer Award and... It just gets better, folks. She has been turned into a hologram to help welcome visitors to the Austin Central Library. I have more. I could keep going, but let's get right to it. Sarah Bird, welcome to the History of Literature podcast. 
<laughs> Thank you, Jack. I'm delighted to be with you. <laughs> I, had, I actually had this idea that maybe someday there'll be a podcaster Hall of Fame and they'll make a hologram out of me. And then Definitely. you and I, the next time we get together, we can just sip cocktails while our holograms interview while one our another. holograms <laughs> are, are warm and personable. <laughs> while we remain the, the austere two-dimensional people that we are in reality. And yet our holograms are so warm and personable. <laughs> they Brilliant. can handle yeah. it. They can handle it. Although I have yeah. some work to do. Okay. So there are two, I guess there's three areas I want to talk to you about today. One is your 10th and most recent novel, Daughter of a Daughter of a Queen. Mm-hmm. And the other is your life and career as a writer. You've had a truly fascinating path to get to where you are. I have a lot of questions about that. And then the third is one of the authors that you selected to talk about today, Gabriel <sighs> Garcia Marquez. Yes. So let's go in order and start with you and your background. I understand you grew up in a military family living abroad? That's that's absolutely right. Air Force. Yeah. And stationed uh, different places around the world? Yes, yes. Um, you know, the most formative ones overseas were, uh, we lived in Japan, sort of post-occupation era, and, and then we lived in Okinawa, you know, Terra, now a province of Japan, um, kind of during the Vietnam era. So those were extremely formative. Right. So let me tell you a little story to kind of oh, frame good. my question here. So. I was I grew up in America and a very local existence. I had never been on a plane until I was 18, I guess. And I had always had Christmas in the exact same way in the exact same place wow. at my grandparents' house. And then See, That's so exotic to me. That's so exotic. <laughs> Continue with your story. So then I went abroad and I couldn't go home for Christmas and so I was going to visit my sister, and I was traveling uh, from Italy up to England, and I stopped to see a friend in Germany, in Munich. And it was, you know, the day before Christmas Eve, and I was really feeling like this was not the Christmas that I was used to, and I kind of missed the tradition, and I missed, I kind of missed home. And so she was very nice, and she took me around on a tour and everything. And then she said, you know, how does it feel? And I said, well, to be honest, I just sort of, I just kind of miss home and I kind of, it just doesn't feel real Christmassy to me. And <laughs> and then, you know, we went for a walk and then we turned the corner and I, there were all these houses and they were all lit up with Christmas lights and everything. And I said, now this feels like finally somebody gets it. And she said, yeah, we've walked on to the American military base. <laughs> Oh, that is perfection. That, I was, oh my God, I was just going to say, there is no more American place on earth than the overseas American military base. It's like, it's like a recreation of the most idyllic American hometown. Right. You know, the one that sort of never really existed, um, Except the people shuffle in and out every two or three years and get a complete change in population. At least you did when I was growing up. So it just seems like, on the one hand, you'd be intensely American, and you're you're surrounded by grown-ups who are serving in the military, a very patriotic endeavor, a very American uh, kind of thing to do. And at the same time, you'd be exposed to foreign cultures in a way that a lot of American children wouldn't be. So how was the experience for you? Um, 
you know, you can have it kind of either or, at least that uh, that was my experience growing up. I, I was very, very fortunate in that uh, my mother was, uh, she had had a very large life. She met my father uh, during World War II at a barn dance in North Africa. Mm. So she had had quite a large life and was, as she said, she just wasn't the white gloves and girdle kind of gal, which oh. is a typical officer's wife. is. So she was always packing us into whatever station wagon she could pack her six children into and taking us to all sorts of places. You know, that was her delight. She was never happier than, than when she was in the midst of, um, you know, a, an, a market uh, where, you know, there were a lot of strange fish and produce being displayed. And, right. and she was you know, without speaking the language, having a great time with, with whoever was there. So we got exposed to that in a way that a lot of military kids did not. I will say there is the other segment that never left the base. And they, in fact, had the most American yeah. kind of upbringing, you know, very cloistered, uh, hermetic sort of thing. But the other thing I'll say is that growing up on an overseas military base kind of creates you into... I don't want to say super patriot because that has the wrong connotation, but a very idealistic American. Mm. I was I was raised as a in that sense of being a super patriot, very very idealistic about America. Yeah, what America stands for and what its right. founding principles were, and and you'd almost have to because that's that's why you're abroad, right? I mean, yeah. You yeah, know, yeah, and that's why your father uh, walked out of the door every day, willing to uh, risk his life. Right. Do you think that being in those cultures made you a better observer? I think I feel like you would have seen such a contrast mm-hmm. between absolutely, you know, your own life in a kind of on the base being a, an America away from right. America, but you also probably saw some television movies, so you got that that um, view of America, well, and then there was no American television at the time. We were in Japan, so you know we were watching the series. We either watched sumo. Wrestling or Geiko Kaming, which was the Japanese superhero who rode around on essentially a Vespa. I don't know what the Japanese version of that was. But uh, the way it made me an observer was the constant moving Mm, and being yanked up and put into, you know, not necessarily entirely foreign culture, but just a different version of my own culture. You know, in in kids, kids in school, everybody develops their own culture. And so it really behooved you to be able to learn the culture fast and try your best to fit in. Yeah. So uh, on that, you know, in that sense, it made me, it made me a better observer, forced me to be an observer. Yeah. It, did it? Did you feel isolated, or were you tight knit with your family members? Very, very tight knit family. I mean, yeah. freakishly tight knit idiosyncratic family, one of those. And I've learned later, it's not unusual in large, in, in our case, Irish Catholic families, yep. that uh, it's just, you know, we, you develop your own language and mm. everybody's most comfortable at home. None of us were particularly socially gifted. You know, we were not. And we communicated uh, a lot through humor. So it was this constant riff-a-thon, you know, yeah. where everybody's trying to top <laughs> each other and get the last crack in. And that was also kind of encouraged by uh, by the military culture, by our father, who, you know, very, very, very strict, you know, kind of repressive military Catholic world where your job as, certainly as a female child, was to be cute and be quiet. Mm. But 
you could, so in that sense, you, you know, you weren't allowed to say practically much of anything, but if you could, if you could get a laugh, it, there was no limit. Yeah. You could get away with anything. So, yeah, we, none of us liked school very much, but we really liked uh, coming home and being with each other. Yeah. And where were you in the order? Second oldest. Second oldest. So I, have, okay. I have an older brother. Uh, thank God I wasn't the oldest male in a military family. Ah, that's pressure. Tough. Yeah, very, very tough. Okay, so at some point, what drove you toward writing? What What was, was it, did you start as a big reader or were you oh doing creative God, projects? Yeah. Oh, that was that was the other that was the other glue that bound us. My mm. my siblings and I was were books, mm-hmm. and that was our drug. You know, to wherever we'd go, you know, the new base, we'd immediately head to the base library and and just start, you know, working our way through the entire library, uh, right. uh, checking out everything we could, and then we'd go home and switch books around. And then we started acting out books. Mm. So, you know, we take characters and act out vignettes from Uncle Tom's <laughs> Cabin or something. And <laughs> Were <laughs> no. you, were, did you write those out as scripts or are you just improv? No, 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 no. This is all improv. Yeah. It's all, yeah. all just improv, including, you know, the whipping. Somebody decided they were going to be Simon Legree. My older brother decided he was going to have to whip us all. So that was a little bit, you know, too much commitment. Way, right, way too much commitment. right. But you were all eager to jump in and take one of the characters because the books felt so real to you? Yeah, yeah. They became utterly, uh, you know, transporting and real. And, you know, a great refuge from sort of the brutal world of the new school, you know, always yeah. being new. Right. And, you know, so one of us would, you know, be throwing up from nerves or, you know, <laughs> having yeah. some kind of accident. It was, we were not adaptable in that sense. Although, you know, some military kids do, you know, they become very socially adept. We, we didn't go down that path, but yeah. um, we always had books. We yeah. always had that, that refuge. And did you, did you t- try your hand at writing one early on, or did it did that oh, come God, later? No, 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 no. See, unlike probably anybody you've ever had on your STEAM program, I, <laughs> that thought, I was literally making my living as a writer before the thought came to me that I could be a writer, because these were creatures on Mount Olympus. Yeah. You know, as, as infrequently as children of my era would ever see a living writer, you know, I, I never saw anyone who wasn't in uniform. I never saw career right. choices outside of you know, being a warrior and yeah. defending our country. So, no, the thought that was that was beyond my power to imagine. Yeah. So when did you start? I actually started, and I didn't think of it as I started writing, but kind of how I backed into it was... I was an au pair in France um, during college. I left, you know, officially went to learn French. I actually, you know, had a bad breakup, and I so I decided I better go to another continent or I'd mm. get back with the dog. So <laughs> I was uh, an au pair in France and trying to improve my French. 
and the three-month-old baby that I was taking care of was not helping at all in the effort. My French was better than the le baby stupide. So I, um, I started reading. I found something called photo romances, which um, it's, it's like they're like a comic book version of telenovelas. Uh-huh. So all the character, but all the characters were speaking in colloquial French. You know, right. like Guillaume, l'oiseau d'amour, you know, that kind of stuff. So, uh, and it occurred to me, anyway, it was a form, I encountered a form of writing so lowly that it occurred to me I could do it. And yeah. then when I, uh, when I returned um, to uh, our country, I, I looked up a comparable market, which turned out to be True Confessions, Pulp yeah. Fiction. Yeah. And so I, I initially started writing to support myself. Right. So mm-hmm. you you hadn't been a big reader of that. You you sought it out as a genre of what would yeah. be what's a hurdle well, I could get was, over. This was this was pulp fiction. I mean, these were true confession stories, like true confession, true love, true romance, modern confessions, modern mm-hmm. love, modern romance. And they were printed on on uh, high acid paper, you know, called pulp. So yeah. it's pulp fiction and, and, and magazines. These were magazines versus later I wrote <laughs> the, the highly vaunted the romance novel. But this, this, these were different from it. These, these were told in, in a blue collar voice, uh, somebody confessing. In my case, the first one I confessed to was I seduced my parish priest. <laughs> 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 and so... And I, you know, I, could, I supported myself from for, from writing those for quite yeah. some time. But that was that was the impetus, and I was able to do that because I no names appeared. It was anonymous. Right. So I honestly, I I admire people that start off in you know they go to MFA programs and they're they're attached not only their name but their face and their whole entire physicality. <laughs> that just blows my mind that that a young person could do that. But right. that's off. But so, I mean, my guess is once you sort of figure out how to do it, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some people might write a hundred of these, but you stopped. Was it, did you find it not fulfilling at some point or did you? <laughs> <laughs> not fulfilling. Uh, listen, Jack, I also wrote the <laughs> pesticide brochures for the EPA and um, they both were were satisfying in the sense that they paid my rent. Yeah. But that, you know, that wasn't, you know, and I will, I'm not going to slag any, any genre because um, they fulfill different needs in, right. in people. And, and they're, you know, they're just a different set of rules, conventions, and I respect all of them, but it was not my preferred genre. Yeah. Uh, so, so, you know, it was a learning curve. There was all, you know, decided I was going to do it and, I enjoyed the puzzle aspect of it. Like, yep. how do you crack this code? What, you know, and in the, um, the true confession stories, it was this, this blue-collar world that you had to inhabit. And great training. I, I have to say great, great training to learn to write to an audience. And then the romance novels had very, very precise. So these were actual, you know, book-length things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had their own very, very precise conventions, which change. Almost monthly. Yeah. Was yeah, you know, like they'd send out they'd send out bulletins. It's like we're tired of the wine country. <laughs> <laughs> no more wine country. <laughs> and then then you get the bulletin. No, I'm not going to tell you the bulletin. 
they discovered something during my third novel, so they um, they wanted to interject a new a new form of sex into the books, which they alerted their their writers. About. Yeah. Now, were there? Let's talk about the positive side. Were there lessons that you learned as a fiction writer? Oh, how to like the pace and and I would guess there'd be a oh. lot of things you could. You yeah, learn. Jack. I think I think the major major thing I learned was the genre is all about fulfilling expectations. Mm, mm-hmm. You have to fulfill a reader's expectations. You know, yeah. the reader that picks up a thriller, they're going to want to see a knife into someone's heart, or you know, whatever that convention is. Um, yep. A romance novel. There had you know, depending on you know, what temperature of the romance, because they're sweet and they're spicy and each has a certain number of sex scenes. And so I, I learned about expectations, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a, a, a movie of the week mentality in which you do the expected things. And it's funny, people ask, uh, oh, did you transcend the genre? Should I read your romance novel? I said, absolutely not. You know, right. The, that's, yeah, that's that's a contradiction in terms. They got right. published. So they did not transcend the genre. <laughs> they were the genre. They succeeded in being the genre. Yeah. Um, but I also, you know, I it's just it's what became a very very tight box for me in the sense that um, it, you know, I wanted to do things that the reader I I only wanted to do things that the reader didn't expect or that might offend the reader or take the reader someplace he or she had not expected to go. So, mm. so you know, that was, was like running laps versus orienteering, you know, something like that, you know, discovery. Yeah. Well, I, I think of it almost like uh, a poetic form or something. You know, there's there's something very gratifying for a poet about fitting into a sonnet form. But then, you know, that doesn't mean that that's the only form that you want to write in. It's it's you also want to um, try something different and and basically work your craft in a in a totally different way. That is the most flattering analogy I've ever heard <laughs> about Rome. Thank you very much. Thank you very, very much. <laughs> well, no, I think the rent. I don't know what else to tell you. I think, but that's the thing. I think not everybody can do it. You know, it it seems like... It turns like, out that's true. Yeah. You know, actually, if I ever taught, which, um, you know, I don't have that gift that was, that was, you know, that was probably the major reason I wrote all these things is because I couldn't teach. I was, at that time, I was very, very shy. I could not have, I, I couldn't have spoken in class, mm. much less taught a class. But if I did ever teach, I would love to teach genre writing for serious writers, uh, because I worry about how writers uh, are supporting themselves nowadays, and and I, yeah. Anyway, that's that's one thing that I think would be fun to explore. Yeah, but I'm not I... going to do it. So, <laughs> so one other thing I wanted to ask you about your background before we sure. get to uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez is Yay. you. Uh, I think a lot of writers are English majors in college or literature majors, mm-hmm. and you majored in anthropology. Right. And right, I know right, right. there are, uh, Kurt Vonnegut did that, Saul Bellow did that, but I'm wondering if what you were able to draw from anthropology, if you, if you trace a line between anthropology and your later fiction writing, if it was useful yeah. for you in that way. 
Absolutely. I mean, I I was not aware of that until I started looking at how anthropological my novels are versus psychological yeah. in the sense that I love exploring different worlds. Yeah. And and you know, kind of sending news back to the reader about this strange world I found. And uh, my first novel was set in a female co-op when I moved to Texas and went to the University of Texas and and just the characters I met in that world were so fascinating. And and the frat world across the street, mm. which I had moved yeah. from New Mexico where that world had died out. And so this whole, you know, that world was so strange to me. And, and I loved capturing it. And, and then when I wrote romance novels, that was a world that I loved capturing. Yeah, being, you know, coming from anthropology and learning to kind of identify the signifiers of a group, how you belong to a group, how you, uh, you know, ingratiate yourself into a group, how the group forms you, deforms you. That was very, very interesting to me and kind of reached its peak maybe in my novel, Virgin of the Rodeo, where I went. I had my character going from what I kind of thought of as rodeos of the others, these Various rodeos I photographed: African American rodeos, uh, Native American chariadas, and each one was its own vibrant, unique subculture. Uh, so yeah, that was a blast. <laughs> what yeah. a complete blast! <laughs> so, do you feel like, as a fiction writer, you it helps you to really understand a world, and then that gives you the the freedom to kind of splash around so to speak so you once I you... would say yeah I would say I probably work more that way I know most most writers work from character out but I uh it's really important for me to understand the character's world and how it's going to impact usually her so that's uh, yeah. that's what intrigues me and that's kind of where I usually start yeah a lot of times I feel like the research is comes to us and it's it's not fully digested. It feels like a little bit inserted or tacked on like it was a you know research. But <laughs> that's I, like that's like all my first to eighteenth drafts, Jack. That you just described. Well that's that's what I was the major gonna, thing I have to <laughs> That's what I was gonna say is that in your books <laughs> it feels like You've you've absorbed it to the point where you can then uh, just give us the fiction, and it it feels more effortless than that. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of work that goes into it, but it it. Well, thank you. No, that's that's the goal. I don't, you know, I I mean, like I read the early drafts and I go, oh, giant information download here. That's, <laughs> that doesn't happen in real life. Let's not do that. And so, right, you know, it's just a matter of, of calling those things out and, and, you know, letting the character discover that. Okay. So speaking of creating a world, mm -hmm. uh, where were you in life when you discovered the great <gasps> magical realist, Gabriel Garcia Marquez? Oh, you know, this is such a gift that, you know, I gave you a list of my favorite beloved writers and you chose, uh, Garcia Marquez. Mm -hmm. I named, I, our son is named after him. That's how oh. much I love him. I mean, you just zeroed in. But I, I absolutely remember the moment when I read A Hundred Years of Solitude. Yeah. So I, this is 1972. Mm. I'd returned from my stint as an au pair uh, and was, had embarked upon 
torrid romance that my parents did not approve of. So I borrowed their car, snuck out at night, and but I was in the middle of reading this book, and this was also a hundred years of solitude came to me in in the best way. I mean, I wish every book sort of washed ashore in the same way that this book did, and that one of my brothers just handed it to me in the way that we just passed books around yeah. and said, "Here, you know, you're gonna like this. Read this one." And that's all I knew. I'd never, <sighs> I never read a review of it, knew nothing about it. You know, but, uh, that that's one of the things I was going to mention. Is I really feel like Marquez. I, I'm a little younger than you, and I feel like. I really missed out on that experience I, because I would I would actually have to agree because he you can't understand how influential he was yeah and how he just exploded at that time particularly yep. you know in the world I inhabited I was living in New Mexico very counterculture very uh, politicized very radical um, you know height of whatever I'm uh, but. And everything became Garcia Marquez after that. Yeah, every you could you could just see how writing changed, how influential he was, and you know certainly by the time it's sort of filtered down to you, it's been so absorbed. It's so absorbed. It's, so many. It's just people. part of the vocabulary. Yep. It's, it's everything. It's everywhere. It's it's done. It's you just don't understand how different it was. Yeah. To, but I was, so I was, you know, you know, I borrowed my parents' Volvo. I was always remembering their Volvo 240. And I was driving them over to see this guy who was madly, wildly crazy in love with. And, but I was also in the middle of re of reading 100 years. And I just remember just stopping outside of his house, turning on the dome light and reading. Because, you know, as alluring as that prospect, you know, inside there was, I could not stop reading. And that was just, again, I mean, even remember it was the paperback edition, which came out, I don't know when it came out. I, I was reading it in 1972, so it wasn't too long. I think it was translated in in 70. Um, but it had, it just had this very sensual cover on it of this couple embracing in front of, uh, I think it was bright, you know, vivid sun in a tropical setting. And everything about it was so alluring. It just captured the book, the sensual feel. And then you start reading the book. It completely drags you in from the first sentence. Mm. And it changes how you look at the world. Um, do you know that's... A lot of people have said that. For me, it was this deep sense of confirmation oh, of a world right. that I had never had confirmed before. Yeah. And it was this world where... The dead, uh, you know, the departed are still with us, and it was it was the Catholic world that I'd grown up with. I'd go, I'd grown up going, you know, when when we were not overseas, I was in Catholic schools in S South Texas. So that was, you know, the clergy there was either Latin American liberation theologists or um, Irish Catholic, but so it was this wild blend of liberation theology and medieval Catholicism, so that, you know, like there would be penitentes, you know, people getting mock crucified and, and scourged, and all lots of gore, you know, real, real gory Catholic, yeah. uh, and very, very mystical. And yeah. that was that world. 
Yeah. That was that world. It also combined with, you know, coming from a large family and understanding, you know, history repeating itself and these stories surviving through generations. So it just felt like this is right. Yeah. Well, I guess what I meant is, and I had this experience when I was a kid where I would go to watch uh, Alfred Hitchcock movies. And then I would find that for like the next 24 or 48 hours, I would be looking at people and Mm -hmm. thinking, what if I woke up and came out for breakfast and my mother did not know who I was, you know, and just... (laughs) Just was like, who are you? What are you no, doing I here? Understand. You know? And I <laughs> yeah. feel like yeah. after I read right. Garcia Marquez, I started noticing relationships I had in a way that I hadn't. And you sort mm-hmm. of, I just sort of became more alive to the world. Jack, your consciousness was altered, as my people would have said back in the day. <laughs> back in the day. And, you know, I'm looking yeah. at the, the timing of this. I, I don't know if there's another, there maybe is another example of this, but so uh, 100 Years of Solitude came out in 1967, but I think it swept the world a couple years later than that as it was translated. He won the Nobel Prize in 1982, which is, Hmm. it's like a a comet. I mean, the way that it, you know, like I'm used to people after 30, 40 years of a writing career, but this is so fast. And so... By the time the first book I read of his was Love in the Time of Cholera. And it is a great book. I love it. And it's kind of crazy that it was written after he was already the Nobel laureate. He was already like for me, he was already on Mount Rushmore. And as you Mm -hmm. say, he was uh, he was so influential and imitated and just that he was so absorbed that uh, I don't think I ever got the kind of freshness that it must have been like when you first read 100 Years of Solitude. It, it was a unique experience. I mean, it was that, well, it wasn't entirely. I mean, the only other experience I had was uh, when I read The Wizard of Oz books. And that so mm. mirrored my experience as a military kid being uprooted and hurled into. So, yeah, yeah those two books, those two books were, were the touchstones mm-hmm. and that same kind of deep, deep familiarity. Yeah. So when you started reading Garcia Marquez, were you already uh, writing fiction yourself or did that come later? Uh, like I said, I was in that period where I was, you know, I was writing fiction, but did not consider myself a writer. I, I yeah. would never have been that presumptuous. I, you know, was earning money as a, yeah. as a writer. Uh, no, this, you know, I didn't read it and say, by Jingo, I ain't going to do that one day. It was just, it just, you know, kind of showed me a summit that, you know, was off in the distance. And, you know, I don't, I don't think I consciously thought maybe someday I'll do something like that. But it, uh, it definitely just, you know, showed me other possibilities, other worlds and, and something, just something to aspire to. Were you drawn in by the style? I mean, readers, I think you can't help but be drawn in by the style. But did you see in that anything that resonated with you for a kind of writing you wanted to do? You know, honestly, I'm I'm embarrassed because you know, I didn't study literature, so I didn't really know how to read in that way. You yeah. know, I just I just sort of turned. I just surrendered to books. I completely yeah. surrendered, and it was <laughs> I was always looking to be transported. I. I really wanted my brain to be turned off and to have 
just this completely overpowering experience. And that's what I had. And, you know, I mean, I could, you know, go back now and, you know, I I, I love, uh, to me, it's an anthropological novel in the sense of the worlds that he creates yeah. and, and how these, <laughs> this whole tribe of people is so defined by it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Well, that's, I'm going to make an analogy here that uh, <laughs> go for it. I, I can hear what you're. I can already hear you say uh, because you're a very modest person. You're going to say that this is over the top, but some of my heroes are the Beatles, and you know they could never read music, and for them it was all just uh, the music came in and then it poured out, and it was not something you know, especially in their earliest years that they were. Uh, critical thinkers about, but it was, uh, you know, the way they absorbed it. It almost sounds like that's the way Garcia Marquez would have been for you is you read it and you love it as a reader. And then when you sit down to write, it's not as if you're saying, oh, I see how he did this. I see how he did that. And I can adopt this and I can use this little piece over here. I would say the one, you know, what I got, and I definitely went back to him and 100 Years of Solitude and also uh, a Nigerian writer named Ben Okri, who mm. wrote mm-hmm. Uh When I was writing my last book about the East China Sea, in which I was trying to convey the spiritual world of, of, of Okinawa, yeah. where, where we lived for three years, and I, I, I did not want to do it in a tourist kind of way, and I was really stuck, you know, like, like you're talking about the big, oh, big download on, on beliefs right. of the Okinawans. And, <laughs> and so I just plunged into it and I was very, very inspired by um, what, I, you know, is called magical realism, and I think it's just weird stuff you personally didn't grow up with because, you know, my yeah. whole world was magical realism in the Catholic Church, but nobody ever thought about it that way uh but just to present it and ben oakley does the same thing you know the voice of a ghost and in, in the opening of famished road very deadpan very matter of fact yep. oh, oh yeah you know so and so and then you find out so so and so was talking to them and, and they had died 200 years ago and the okinawans are the same way they yeah. they believe very much in the continuing influence of those who have departed in their lives, and it's a major mechanism in their lives. So, I wanted to incorporate that, and and had to return to the master. I'm glad that you used the word deadpan because I was I was going to bring that up as well. That that was that's such an important part of Marquez. I heard that Garcia Marquez. I heard that that was something that he. That's how his grandparents told stories. And that was something that he wanted to do is to just recount these these things as in the same tone in which they would be recounted in the newspaper. Uh, yeah, you know, exactly, and, exactly. I just I just didn't want to have that tone like you're not going to believe this weird shit. Right? There's ah, oh, this is <laughs> get this wowsy zowsy. And they gave me definitely he gave me a model like the best model we've ever had for that. Yeah. Okay, so let's move to the novel, your most recent novel, which is just an unbelievable story. Uh, I could I could see where, as a fiction writer, you would be drawn to it, but you also it also had a long uh, genesis. Uh, it has quite mm-hmm. an origin story. So let's dig in. So it's the novel's called "Daughter of a Daughter of a Queen," and it's fiction based on a historical figure. So tell us about right. the narrator, Kathy Williams. Who is she? Kathy Williams 
is uh, was an enslaved woman who, after the Civil War, disguised, made the monumental decision to disguise herself as a man, and she served for two years in the Buffalo Soldiers. This is this is document we have her in, documented. We have her enlistment papers, her discharge paper. We know she did it. And I first heard her story uh, when I was um, researching these rodeos of the other and fell in love with, especially the African-American rodeos. And it was at a Juneteenth rodeo in 1978 that I heard a couple of black cowboys, you know, say, well, hey, you're a writer. Here's a great story for you. This woman, Buffalo Soldiers. And it just like, oh, my God, why hadn't I ever heard that story? That's amazing. And I tried to research it. Fortunately, I live in um, Austin, Texas, as a world-class university library system. So I pawed through, you know, this is 1978, before the Internet. So I was, you know, digging through the stacks and whatnot. Yep. Uh, the Dewey Decimal System card catalog. Couldn't find anything, not a word on Kathy Williams, female Buffalo Soldier, and very, very little on the Buffalo Soldiers in general. So yeah. I, I assumed the story was kind of a fable. I loved the story. wished it were true, but it wasn't true. And then I didn't uh, really think anything more about it until 1988 when I was pregnant. And the uh, teacher of our childbirth class came up to me and said, you're, you're a novelist, right? I have this great story. And she says, her name is Pam Black. She said, I teach at a predominantly African-American kindergarten. I've been trying to get materials for stories for my kids uh, about heroes who look like them. And I came across this great, great story about a woman, Kathy Williams, who discovered herself as a man. I said, oh, sorry, Pam, that I've done the research. It's a myth. <laughs> I've done the research, and it's not true. She said, oh, really? And then at the next class, she brought me ca- copies of Kathy's enlistment papers, a certificate for right. discharge, application for a pension, and that just took the top of my head off because, yeah. as I mentioned, my mother was was also a warrior. Uh, her service never recognized. Um, but so I had, you know, and through various things, I you know, kept up with the history of the military, women in the military, and they were not officially allowed into the peacetime U.S. military until 1946, 48, I can't recall. Uh, although... Hundreds of women had disguised themselves as men and served in both the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. For a woman to have done this during the peacetime in the regular military was just a vastly higher order of difficulty. Yeah. uh, Various, various things. Anyway, I realized she would have been the first woman to have enlisted in the peacetime U.S. military. And I, I was riveted by her story, um, and then there followed a long period where I pushed it away, and it kept coming back to me in very, very eerie ways. So what sources did you have to work from? At that point, uh, what Pam gave me, um, in addition to these papers, was this quite remarkable telephone uh, relationship that she'd had with a woman named Barbara Richardson. Barbara's father had lived at Kathy Williams, the boarding house that Kathy Williams ran towards the end of her life in Trinidad, Colorado. Oh, okay. And see, the, the, the really heartbreaking thing about this is absolutely only documentation 
that exists are the notes that my friend Pam took about these conversations. And, wow. uh, and Barbara Richardson did a small, I guess you call it a monograph, essentially. She Xeroxed her own history of uh, African Americans of distinction in New Mexico yeah. and included Kathy Williams in, in that. So I hope historians someday, if there are any listening, please track down Barbara Richardson. I would love to help you. She's no longer with us, but um, she referred to a lot of very, very juicy sources. Uh, Anyway, so the stories that were passed down from her father uh, about Kathy, and Kathy had been telling her story to these miners who lived in her boarding house for years and years, and no one believed her that she had been a Buffalo soldier. They said, no, there's no way a woman could have pulled pulled that off for two years. And she said, well, I did. Nobody believed her until Barbara Richardson's father, who had some, had some military service himself, knew enough to realize she was telling the truth and then wrote her story down in these scraps of doggerel, what he could remember of it. And so in addition to that, there is a uh, an interview which Kathy gave to the St. Louis Daily Times in 1876. Right. And, I saw a mention of that. You know, yeah. I should say, mm-hmm. I, I tried to do some research on this myself, and I'm just going by Wikipedia. The, the page for Buffalo Soldier doesn't even mention her, even though it includes, right. you know, prominent members. She's not among them. There is a page for her as a Buffalo Soldier, and it talks about this article. I wasn't able to get to the article itself, but it, it does sound like there was someone in, I guess, what was the paper? St. Louis uh, Dispatch? Daily Times. Daily yeah. Times. Okay. Uh, so what, what were they able to get of her story down in print? It detailed her service. It, it's a it's it's a good article in one sense, and it's a very suspect article in another sense, as the only source we have about her. Because, um, you know, as in, for example, the WPA narratives that were written during the Depression, there's a significant degree of condescension, uh, mm. which makes it just makes you wonder how if the reporter was getting the full story, but it does detail her service and the remarkable basics of her life in that she, at the very beginning of the civil war, she was taken off this uh, tobacco farm that she was enslaved on and held in bondage. And then throughout the civil war, she cooked and did laundry for one of the three great civil war generals, general Philip Sheridan and so followed him throughout the Civil War and down through some very, very consequential battles in, in which there was a lot of rear guard action, which meant that she would have been involved. You know, that's there, although we don't have, you know, there's nothing. Kathy's obviously written nothing because slaves were not allowed to learn to read or write. It was, you know, it could be killed for for owning a book. So yeah. they were, they literally did not have the tools to tell their own stories and subsequently do what the um, white settlers uh, and white cavalry did, which was, you know, mythologize themselves. Yeah. And I read an interview you gave that talked about the choices that would have been facing her after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. The, the South was, a, I think you call it a smoldering graveyard, and she could be a sharecropper's wife, uh, which is was essentially a, almost like returning to slavery. Completely, um, absolutely. 
or a cook or a laundress a or a prostitute. Uh, and so do you think that's what drove her toward uh, signing up with the Buffalo Soldiers is just looking for a better way to exist? Yeah, see, that part is no mystery to me why yeah. she did it. It's no mystery. The mystery to me is why didn't more women do it? Yeah. yeah. You know, if she could pull it off. And, uh, you know, and, and, and I had a lot of fun with the mechanics of how she of how she pulled it off. Uh, and just imagining just the basic physicalities that she had to deal with. That was um, that was fun. But you also have to remember, this was a time when people didn't take their clothes off very much. Right. So it was not entirely impossible. In, in her actual service record, she was hospitalized. She was in the infirmary five times before on the sixth time it was discovered that she was a woman. So this is not your <laughs> most, would not have been your most thorough examination yeah. by any means. And it doesn't seem as if, I mean, she was, she was discharged, but it was, she was honorably discharged. Yes, yes, very important to note. Yeah, so it it doesn't seem like uh, I I mean I don't know maybe maybe I haven't gotten that far in the book yet or maybe there's research I don't know about but it it doesn't seem like people were especially angry that they had been deceived. It was almost like they just asked her to leave and and sent her on her way. But uh, did you? Uh, well, that's kind of a, a big yes and no. Um, okay. Here's what we know about that area. In, in Sheridan's memoirs, he recounts that one of his officers reported that he'd found two women serving. And, I mean, all he said about that was they were given proper attire and sent on their way. Mm. So, you know, certainly did not seem to be a big deal during the Civil War. And, in fact, several women who disguised themselves as men and served later got pensions. Yeah. So, And she applied uh, Kathy, for a pension, right? Kathy. She did apply for yeah. a pension, uh, yes, and, um, and this was very interesting in that the physician then who examined her crossed out all the hisses and hymns and wrote in, you know, her and and, mm-hmm. and she, and so you know, very, very huge acknowledgement that this really happened. She, she was denied, although, you know, I, I, she shouldn't have been, but uh, in. In two accounts of what happened when she was discovered um, in in the uh, St. Louis Daily Times account, all she said is she was treated real bad. Mm. And in the notes from uh, from my friend Pam that she got from Barbara Richardson's father, uh, she said she was raped. Oh, right. By fellow soldiers. Yeah, by her comrades in arms. Yeah. Which... Is Once they discovered it, dispiriting. But, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so, how did you, with with all of the gaps in the record, how were mm-hmm. you able to recreate her voice? Oh, the voice! I had such a great time with the voice. Yeah, um, it's so compelling. I mean, it really is a book uh, I would recommend to all of my. Listeners, and it, it really is hard to put down. It's such a it's such a strong and, and vivid voice. But I also, you know, I, I knew enough about her and her background to know that this was not uh, something where you were able to draw upon uh, thousands of letters or something. That that a lot of exactly. this had to come out of 
your own imagination and and I'm wondering how did you get comfortable that you could it took um, it, it, it that's a great question Jeff. that was the essential question for me yeah. um because I I knew that if I couldn't get the voice right I was not going I mean for many reasons I I put this book off for for decades because I thought it should it was a story that should be told by an African American writer and ideally an African American woman yeah. And and so I kept pushing it off until I reached this point in my life where the story still had not been told and you know and I'm much much closer to the end than I am to any other part of my life so I just realized I I had an obligation to fulfill so uh but I also realized if I couldn't get the voice right there was no point in doing it and I um read tons of research tons period things from that time, and I was always looking for phrases that I hadn't seen before, mm. that hadn't been, you know, certainly overused, uh, you know, or, or used very much, or, or completely, that I had no idea what they meant, and I had first started collecting these when I was doing research with the African American rodeos, and I heard the, uh, the cowboys use this term, bum-fuzzled. And I I never heard that term before. And so I looked up. It's a very old, you know, it it goes back to the 19th century. It's a 19th century term, and it means confused. Uh, But I just love that language. And so I I was, you know, once I started, like, you know, a a tuning fork, kind of getting a pitch for what I was looking for, then I would just start digging in for that kind of richness of the, the 19th century language, which, you know, some ways it seems uneducated to us um, because you know some of the forms they used. I, I changed this. I wasn't I wasn't faithful to this, but instead of climbed, they would have said I clumb the tree. I clumb the tree, and that you know I had that all the way through, and I, I had to take it out because it was too distracting. Right. So there's that combination of what sounds uneducated combined with this King James richness. Yeah. That was so vivid and alluring. So you know I was looking for phrases that sort of summed that up and I you know I leaned on my rodeo research I leaned on the WPA uh, narratives uh, uh you know and our goddess Zora Neale Hurston the yeah. great yep. one of the great great recorders of speech um read a lot of books with titles like 40 miles a day on beans and hay story <laughs> of a cavalry trooper right um, and and it also seems like it opened a door for you when you decided that she was going to be somebody who was inventing herself. I mean, that was kind of what she was doing. And so to to have her as a character who is doing a bit of self mythologizing, yeah. you know, some if you were doing this in the in the voice of. Uh, Ulysses S. Grant, for example, you might have to walk through all kinds of historical details that are of things that are known. But she's somebody who was living, um, you know, she probably told stories about her own background. She probably made yes. made a lot of them up. And this was a part of her personality was to mythologize. That, I, you know, that was that was my sense uh, from from what came down to us through these bits of doggerel that uh, that Barbara Richardson preserved and passed on. She was a powerful woman. She kept the miners in line when she was running the boarding house with a, you know, strong right hook. She was like, 
cold cock these guys <laughs> that they got out of line. And, and, and that was, you know, I was always, you know, that was sort of the answer to the equation. And I, I had to make it balance out. But yeah. the, I mean, the real answer was, how was she able to do it? Who was this woman who of all the women facing these horrific choices just found a way where there was no way? Yeah. How did she do And why was she the only one? So I'm still kind of fascinated by that. Yeah. But um, had to write a book to, to answer some of those questions. So did you get to the point, I sort of, I have a couple of examples. I know uh, Saul Bellow, when he was writing The Adventures of Augie March, he said, the voice was coming. I just had to be there with buckets to catch it. And oh, Mark, I love that. Yeah, isn't that great? And uh, Mark Twain had talked about how he could just put up his feet and listen to Huck mm-hmm. Finn tell stories. And did you get to the point where you felt like the voice was coming to you, like flowing to Absolutely. you like that? Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you know, she started talking to me years and years and years before I committed to writing this. And she was she was very insistent upon like why was Annie why does everybody know who Annie Oakley is and and nobody knows who, who Kathy Williams is you know what did <laughs> what did she ever do except shoot over her shoulder with a mirror um and yeah she still talks to me and that's you know that's the greatest gift gosh that's the greatest gift when the <sighs> when when the characters just come up off the page and and inhabit your dreams and put you to sleep at night and wake you up in the morning and uh, uh, I miss Kathy. I will just say I really, really miss her. Yeah. And you must have felt like you could just nudge her toward a scenario or almost almost invite her to explain a certain thing and then uh, hear mm-hmm. what she had to say. Yeah. It must have been. Yeah, I was like, how did you do this? And then, you know, some vision would come to me. Yeah. I, don't, I mean, that sounds schizophrenic, but well, this, my experience with this book was this, was unlike any other. I have goosebumps. Uh hearing you talk about it. Ah, everybody should read it. Okay, I have a surprise bonus question. Oh, gosh, oh, no. (laughs) Are you ready? You're going to flub it, but go ahead. (laughs) Okay. On a trip to a small, magical town, you find yourself in the darkened room of a psychic who tells you that she can see your future, including the time you will someday spend in author heaven. She says that you are going to be given a choice. You will be given a typewriter and paper, and you can spend a year writing the story of your life. You are free to imagine it in any way you'd like. The book will be published back on Earth, and people will know your story in your own words for generations to come. (laughs) (laughs) That's the first option. The second option is that Gabriel Garcia Marquez has offered to do the job for you. He, oh, he will spend oh. a, he will spend a year imagining his way into oh your God. personality and background and will write a novel with you with <laughs> you as the first person narrator. The book will be oh delivered to Earth and for generations to come, people will know you as a real life person whose story was imagined by the great Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Which do you choose? Is there a choice? Could there possibly be a choice <laughs> just to get to hang out with Gabo? I just get to hang out with Gabo, period. I don't care whatever happens after that. 
That is a hilarious question, Jack. That is that. How did you cook that scenario? Up? Well, here's what. And I'm... who would be who would be writing your life in heaven? Who, who? No, tell me honestly. Answer. Who would write your life in heaven? Oh. Yes. Who? Shakespeare. I don't know. Sure. I, well, I don't know. He he'd probably turn it into something kind of depressing. I think. <laughs> <laughs> You know who I kind of like? One of my favorite writers is Graham Greene. <gasps> That's a brilliant choice. I kind of like what the idea of what he would do with it. Keep it a little bit narrow. You know why? Because he would he would get your subtlety. Yeah. That's probably he would, right. He would get the uh, you know, oh, yep. there's, there's so, lots of hidden easter eggs here. Here's what I wanted to here's why I wanted to pose that to you because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people would say it is, and I think you would probably say it is, it's a tragedy that we don't have Kathy Williams writing a memoir or, you know, hearing mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. this in her voice. Uh, but part of me thinks in some ways having a novelist create someone's life like that, it's it's a close second and it, it may even be, it may even be the way to go. I mean, it, it might be well, that. Well, you know, a, yeah. I think so because, you know, I mean, I sort of took it as my brief to make a giant story out of her life. Yeah. Make a big giant story because there is, in fact, a nonfiction book about her. And it's, you know, it's a lot of supposition. And here was the troop movement here and this and that. And it's just, you know, the good military history, but dull as dishwater. Yeah. And I said, oh, you know, Kathy, Kathy just needs a, a rip snorting yarn just big old yarn something you know larger than life and so yeah i don't think she would have done that for herself right right so oh okay well let's stop there the book is daughter of a daughter of a queen available at bookstores everywhere the author is sarah bird whose website is sarahbirdbooks.com and both the novel and the author are highly highly recommended sarah bird thank you for joining me on the history of literature Thank you, Jack. Okay, there we go, Sarah Bird. How excellent was that? I hope you enjoyed it. My thanks to Sarah for joining me and to our reviewer, Apple iTunes 127, which I doubt is his real name, unless his parents are, in the immortal words of Parker Posey, a wizard and a genius. And my thanks to Edgar Allan Poe for stopping by as well. Mike Palindrome and I are going to take on Karl Marx pretty soon. That should be fun. And we have some good Halloween fun coming up too. I hope you all subscribe so you will all be here for that. Ringing my bell and asking for a treat. And I will pad my way to the front door with my basket of goodies and dish them out. You will growl like a monster, and I will pretend to be scared. But if you look carefully, you will see that my eyes are shining because you are adorable and because you are my friend and because life is good enough to be worth a few tears every now and then. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.